Have you ever wanted to just get away? Whether it's due to the daily friction of life or a particular season of difficulty, I suspect that everyone experiences times of just wanting to escape. Now, escapism has a negative reputation, and justly so in many cases. However, the misuse of escape doesn't invalidate the need for escape in the right circumstances. Escape, you see, is a response to danger. Not to discomfort, not to boredom, not to sadness, not to responsibility, but danger. There are some situations where escape isn't just a good idea. It's an imperative, because the alternative is unthinkable. What does this have to do with the Bible? More than you might think. I invite you to spend the next few minutes with me in looking at what the Bible has to say about the dangers of life, about the things we need to escape from, as well as what we should escape to. You see, we need both the from and the to, if we're to successfully find the way of escape. Hello. I suppose it's only natural, once I've touched on the topic of bad thinking, to confront a problem that's practically inseparable from bad thinking. Corrupting talk, to borrow the wording from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Specifically, I'm borrowing from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A lot of translations phrase it more like Paul is talking about what we call bad language, profanity, and obscenity and such. But the Greek word underneath is actually sapros, and its primary sense is rotten or decaying. But sapros has a number of nuances, so it might be helpful to see how else it's used in the Bible. Jesus uses the word a few times, as in Matthew's Gospel, where he talks about bad trees bearing bad fruit. Both instances of bad there are actually sapros, but is he talking about trees that bear rotten fruit? If we look at another instance, uh, we might get the idea that he's using sapros with one of its different nuances. Uh, the bad tree slash bad fruit usage occurs in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, and again in Matthew 12, 33, if you want to look it up. But in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, Jesus tells a different parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now guess what? When he says they sorted the bad fish and threw them away, uh, that's Sapros again. And I am certain 
he isn't talking about rotten or decaying fish. However, there are a good many fish that are inedible and so completely useless to a fisherman who catches fish for people to eat. In this parable, of course, the bad fish, Sapros fish, represent evildoers, those who reject God and rebel against his authority. In the previous parable, the bad fruit represents the actions and speech flowing from a heart opposed to God's purpose and standards. Do you see the direction that this is going? Let's listen to Ephesians 4.29 again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, there are so many things I'd like to say about this verse, but time and attention not being limitless, I'll stick with the foremost of my thoughts. Edification. It definitely isn't a word you hear often these days, never mind seeing it happen. In general secular usage, it refers to the practice of, how should I say this, of urging people upward to higher moral and spiritual ground. And in the Bible, edification is often spoke of in terms of building up people as God's holy temple. Basically, it means doing and saying whatever you can to in order to influence one another into greater Christ-likeness. Now, it is true. There are many ways to influence other people. And I don't suppose anyone would argue with me if I were to suggest that our words are the most obvious means by which we exert influence. That means it makes sense for the Bible to speak pretty sternly about how faithful disciples should speak. Now, if you do happen to look up Matthew 12:33 to check on Jesus' use of the bad tree, bad fruit metaphor, you'll find an unsettling follow-up in verses 36 and 37, where Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now that latter part, where Jesus mentions condemnation, is pretty disturbing by itself, but I'm kind of more worried about the former part. That phrase, every careless word, is, let's be frank, a scary one to someone who's quick with words and hasn't always been as careful as she ought. <clears throat> Now, I can't help but believe that when the Apostle Paul describes words with the adjective sapros, that he has a broader view than just what we consider bad language. I think he's just following along after what Jesus said about careless words calling us to judgment. And here's why I believe this. Sometimes, to gain a better feel for what a thing is, it's necessary to look at the things opposite. To look at what it is not. So in, in Ephesians 4.29, Paul gives us an implicit contrast. On the one side of the balance, you have these sapros, these rotten, corrupt words. And on the other side, on the opposite side, you have what? 
You have words that build up, words that fit the occasion and to give grace to those who hear. Now, we've talked about building up, but what about fitting the occasion? And this pulls me all the way back to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Now, Proverbs is full of good advice about how and when to speak. Take, for instance, Proverbs ten nineteen: When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Or try Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Like I said, practical. For my present purposes, I recommend Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. The right word at the right time can be more than just pleasing. Not to put this too melodramatically, but it can sometimes be a matter of life or death. The right word at the right time can turn someone away from harm or lift someone up from despair. And I'm sure we've all experienced at least one instance, if not more, of a word ill-spoken and ill-timed that led to, you know, public embarrassment, permanent emotional scarring. We are called to speak as fits the occasion. And then what about grace? There was a day in a time when young women went to special schools to learn what used to be called social graces. In other words, manners. But that isn't quite the sort of grace we mean. And I don't think it's exactly the same sense as when we talk about God's grace toward us, although that is much closer. We can't give grace in the same way God gives it, but we can remind one another of God's grace toward us. Like young children, we can imitate what grace looks like. Now, sometimes God's grace looks like encouragement, and sometimes it looks like a scolding. <laughs> it all depends on the current need, or... <laughs> going back to what fits the occasion. But the aim is always grace recirculating from God to us and from us to one another. Now, you might be thinking by now that I've spent more time than necessary on something that wasn't hard to understand in the first place. Fair enough. It's time to get uncomfortably practical. How often... Do you weigh your words before they leave your mouth? I have to plead the fifth on this one. Forget about the times I say unkind words in the throes of bad temper. What about the words I just throw out there without due thought? I mean, I can totally understand the idea of taking a vow of silence. It's just safer. But it doesn't resolve the real problem there still remain the words I say only to myself, for which I am equally culpable. If I'm serious about speaking only words of edification, of timely grace, then I need help. Am I alone in this? <laughs> Obviously not. 
I hear Christians speak such words as make me cringe. For instance, what about those words that seem almost to gloat over the rampant decay of modern culture, stirring up the disgrace of others and flaunting every specially shocking piece of immorality? Edifying? No. Gracious? No. Or what about those words that inflame the fears already swollen out of all proportion? Edifying? No. Gracious? Definitely not. No one needs more scandal. No one needs more fear or outrage. What we do find in short supply these days, as far as words go, are gracious, edifying words, forgiving words, merciful words, thankful words, and above all, reverent words. I've heard someone estimate that, you know, ten kind remarks are needed to outweigh the effects of one nasty remark. I really do think we would do well to balance our comments about the world in a similar way. For every one statement made about the woeful state of the world, we need at least ten that focus on God's sovereignty over this world, his providence, his power, and his will to save. Of course, it's never going to happen as long as our thinking is skewed toward the world and away from God. So you can see how last episode and this episode make for a rather well-matched pair. With that in mind, I now present three questions to ask yourself the next time you're about to start some idle conversation. Question one. Will my words channel God's grace to my hearers? To ensure this, you first need to be aware of the grace you've received. The many times you've been forgiven when you deserved condemnation. Uh, that awareness, if you keep it close to your heart, will transform the way you think and speak completely. Question two. Does what I have to say meet my hearer's need of the moment? Now this does require us to be more aware of other people's needs than our own desires. Right? The desire to appear witty, for instance or to be admired, or the desire to dump our own emotional and psychological baggage onto others to gain sympathy, or <laughs> worse yet, because misery wants company. And some, some people are good at reading the mood, kind of gauging where other people are at. Some of us are abysmal at it. Doesn't matter. Try your best, and God will take over from there. Question three. Will this build up my hearers. My mind boggles at the attempt to imagine what it would be like if believers approached every conversation with the intention to contribute even a little to someone else's spiritual growth in Christ. 
You might wonder how that's possible when some conversations last only a few sentences, but an idea occurred to me while I was considering these things. If you have a set of people for whom you pray regularly, then you are already primed to start building them up with your conversation. What is it that you pray for them? Don't let the opportunity escape you by limiting your prayers to physical and material matters. Is somebody you know in a difficult situation? Pray for encouragement and then speak encouragement to him. Is another person you know caught between choices and uncertain as to the right way forward? Pray for that person's discernment and then speak good principles to her when you can. Now, I don't mean hand out advice. Anybody can do that. Everybody does that. It takes a lot of restraint to hold on to your advice until specifically asked for it, and to offer instead such scriptural reminders as trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Or else, <laughs> do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And as for those people you only meet once, in a drive through or a checkout line. Sometimes you only have time for eye contact, a smile, and a word of thanks. And those things are rare enough at a time when too many people treat service industry personnel as if they were machines. Now look at every person who assists you, like the human being that they are. It could lead to longer conversations between you. Or it might just plant a seed for someone else to water and nourish. Above all, though, let these brief encounters remind you that we cannot afford to let even one careless, useless, sapros word come out of our mouths. Because that might be the only word we get to speak to that individual. As a child, I loved fairy tales. I still do. I just find something charming about those archetypal figures. The hero, the princess, the old woman, the huntsman, the fool. So much so, in fact, that I wrote my own. It's called the Fairy Tales for Travelers trilogy. The trilogy takes its name from the first novella of three, Fairy Tales for Travelers. It focuses on a group of travelers led by a prince in disguise. What else? His name is Leo, and his task, ostensibly, is to escort his twin sister to her wedding. She's to marry the young ruler of an allied country on the opposite end of a vast, often impenetrable forest. The forest, called Curia Wesh, is governed by a mysterious woman known as the Wesh Lady and inhabited by a people known to Leo as Gypsies. These call themselves the Free Folk and are bitter enemies of Leo's father, the Emperor. His only hope for safe passage through the Wesh lies in meeting up with the elusive Wesh Lady, and the only one who might be able to lead him to her is an amiable and foolish wanderer who goes by the name of Kale. But Kale isn't exactly what he appears to be. 
just like the forest he wanders. And there may be some difficulty between them if Kale finds out what Leo's real quest is. So if you're looking for a little bit of an escape into a land of living fairy tales, I recommend reading Fairy Tales for Travelers, available on Kindle and Apple Books. Thank you.